0: hello and welcome to the trauma and mental health reports podcast series we aim to share stories and knowledge on topics related to trauma and mental health with the community my name is samantha mason and i'd like to welcome our guest for today's episode the honorable mr justice richard d schneider today we'll be discussing the mental health courts So, hi Richard, thank you for sitting with us today. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your expertise?
1: Well, I don't know about expertise. I can tell you um, what I've done uh, briefly. In other words, uh, what my career path has looked like, if if that's what you're
0: interested in. Yeah, that would be great. All right,
1: well, uh, I started out as a a forensic psychologist. Um, I uh, finished my uh, PhD. In um, psychology, and uh, after I'd completed internships and that sort of thing, I went to work at the forensic services of the Calgary General Hospital, uh, which incidentally doesn't exist anymore. But there was a forensic uh, uh, department there, and uh, that's where I started work immediately after finishing graduate school, and uh, after. A, a few years working there and spending a lot of time in the courts we were doing assessments for the courts um, I decided to take a sabbatical year off and um, attended law school and did first-year law I went back to the hospital and uh, to make a long story short I completed my LLB moved to Toronto to article uh, um, practiced as a a criminal lawyer in the city Um, and my practice gradually evolved to the point where the focus was representing individuals with mental illness. Um, uh, In 2000, I was appointed to the bench and in 2012, I was, I guess you'd call my status here seconded from the court. I'm still a full-time sitting judge but my um, assignment is to chair the Ontario Review Board, and that's where I've been now since 2012. So that's it in a nutshell.
0: (laughs) That's great. Um, Do you think that your experience as a clinical psychologist or a forensic clinical psychologist made you better able to defend and sit as a judge for um, defendants who might be considered mentally ill?
1: Well, I, I suppose, At a minimum, I would understand perhaps um, uh, what's going on with my clients a little more easily than perhaps some lawyers who didn't have that background, because um, what I've really felt over the years is I've really been dealing with the same people, but wearing a bunch of different hats. I started out assessing and treating them, um, and then the same population essentially I, I represented as their lawyer that I um, presided um, in in court, for the most part in the mental health court, uh, looking after them when they came before the court. And now, after they've left the court, upon verdicts of unfit to stand trial or not criminally responsible, uh, I'm seeing them once again with the review board. So um, I guess, sure, um, having a background in psychology, um, is, it's got to be some kind of an asset. Uh, truly never felt I had any great advantage over anyone else as a result of that. Um, but um, it probably didn't hurt, that's for sure. Mm-hmm.
0: Awesome, so what was happening in the criminal courts that made you realize that the mental health of the defendants was not being taken into consideration and what prompted you to create the provincial wide mental health court?
1: Um, well, um, First of all, my involvement was only with the court in downtown Toronto. Um, but what was going on at the time? Um, by Well, what we were seeing starting from the late 80s into the mid-90s was a, a really conspicuous uh, rise in the numbers of people coming before the courts who were being identified as having a mental illness. And um, this, was, um, this was something new. Mm-hmm. And uh, the reasons for it are probably uh, complicated. Um, in 1992, we had uh, new legislation which made raising either of the two verdicts, unfit or NCR, uh, a much more attractive proposition. That combined with a number of other things, um, difficulty accessing civil mental health care in particular. Um, For whatever reason, and probably for complexity of reasons, the fact is that the numbers of uh, accused coming into the system suffering from mental illness was going up. And there was no um, court specifically designed to handle that population. Mm -hmm. And we we weren't doing it very well. Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, We were spending inordinate uh, uh, amounts of time sorting out preliminary psychiatric issues and um, accused, uh, once identified as having um, a mental illness, were uh, you know, spending far far too much time in jail in respect of, for the most part, relatively minor to mid-range offenses for which they never would have received any time uh, had they been convicted. Mm-hmm. Um, that was one problem. The second problem was that these same people were cycling back through the court repeatedly, um, several times a year sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we had this so-called revolving door phenomenon. So by 1887, um, as these inefficiencies inefficiencies became more and more pronounced, um, we decided, well, I, I wrote the protocol for the court, but there were a number of us that Uh, were responsible for making it all happen. Um, A pitch was made that we set aside a special courtroom uh, to deal with this population, a special court, Mm -hmm. one of the so-called problem-solving courts. (laughs) And so the pitch was made, I guess, in August of 1997 and we opened the doors in May of 1998. And the objective um, of the court was to deal with these issues much more efficiently, much more expeditiously. Mm-hmm. And that's what that was all about. Mm-hmm.
0: And how do you, how did you find, with that implementation of the new problem-solving court, um, how did it change just a regular criminal court then? How did it change?
1: Well, they, if you were to walk into the mental health court, there'd be a number of things that would look a little different. Um, Number one, the court is much less formal than you'd see in a normal criminal court, a little more relaxed atmosphere. You'd see that the defense counsel and the crown counsel were probably working a little more collaboratively. Mm -hmm. Um, There was more dialogue between counsel and the bench. There are also different and new people in the courtroom. Uh, We have um, psychiatrists um, from CAMH. These are the same psychiatrists that would have been doing assessments all the way along, but at the hospital, now we have them come to the court Mm -hmm. to do the assessments on a stand-down basis in the court. So we have forensic psychiatrists in the courtroom or in offices attached to the courtroom. We also have court mental health workers who really do the lion's share of the lifting here. These are social workers who act as case managers to make sure that... People we put back out onto the street through diversion or on bail or part of probation or part of a conditional sentence, we they make sure they're plugged into the appropriate resources in the community to optimize their chances of success. Um, and uh, you know they'll look after things like obtaining uh, their identification that is inevitably lost, uh, health card, uh, hooking them up with social assistance. Um, getting them a prescription, hooking them up with an outpatient facility or an ACT team, um, finding short-term um, housing, um, even so far as to get them clothing. There's a, a the um, who was running it? I guess it was the Salvation Army um, mm-hmm. at Old City Hall had a clothing donation depot so that we could even, fix them up with Mm -hmm. uh, better clothing so the court mental health workers in a nutshell would uh, put together a survival kit for them Mm -hmm. to make the uh, hopefully slow down the revolving door Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. that their chances of success would be uh, improved Mm
0: -hmm. that's great that's really that's really lovely um, you also played a pivotal role in cl- the closing of the Don jail here in Toronto and prompted the government to change the legislation in regards to decriminalizing the mental Yale. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that came about?
1: Well, I don't know whether I was <laughs> all that responsible, uh, but w- what I did do was um, uh, because of the appalling conditions at the Toronto Jail and the extent to which it ran afoul or was not comporting with the UN Convention on minimum standards for housing prisoners, um, what I was doing that the government didn't like was giving um, individuals who were in pretrial custody enhanced credit Mm -hmm. for their stays at the Don jail. So if they had prior to resolving their matter spent um, 60 days at the dawn jail, I'd give them credit for 180 days. Mm-hmm. Now, there was no fine math associated with this, but when you have a cell that was designed in, oh, I think it was in the 1850s, to house one person, and then it was fitted up to house two, and then more recently, three with one uh, lying on the floor, often uh, with uh, e- urine floating around on the floor, um, you have to say, well, that, that, isn't, um, that isn't right. Um, and uh, so I was giving people who were housed in pretrial custody at the, at the Toronto Jail enhanced credit. Well, as you might imagine, um, the government um, didn't think much of that. And so um, I, I, I think, if I contributed in any way, it was um, as providing a bit of an impetus to take a look at the, the, the look at the Don Jail and how far off it was from, you know, where it should be, and to um, uh, maybe nudge the government uh, toward creating um, the new jail, which they, of course, have done since. Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of problems with that jail, but that's another story. (laughs) So, anyway, as a result, uh, in addition to, um, you know, building a new remand centre in Toronto, um, the legislation was changed Mm -hmm. so that now there are um, rules um, uh, articulated as to um, what kind of credit can be given for pretrial custody and certain rules for going above that, mm-hmm. uh, which didn't exist before and left it really to the discretion of the trial judge? Mm-hmm. That's now um, been repaired as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Awesome. Um, and you wrote a book, Death of a Butterfly, and it went through some cases that appeared before you. Can you tell us a little bit about the collection of essays?
1: Well, I don't know that they're essays so much as little vignettes. I mean, what I, the, that, that book came about as a result of me contributing a book chapter. The book was a collection of um, chapters written by people in the field from all around Canada. The, um, the book, uh, The Death of a Butterfly, was really um, just an expansion of that book chapter that was written a few years before. Um, Some friends of mine said, oh, those are some really interesting customers that you had up here before you. You know, um, uh, if you have any more of them, that might make uh, an interesting little book. So I, I went through my office and dug up old transcripts and old bench books. We, you know, we keep bench books and those are notes uh, about every case that we hear during the day and we store them all up and I've got them stacked all over there. I don't know how many I've got. Yeah. Um, going through the bench books, remembering um, to myself uh, old interesting cases that came before me and I just put a collection of them together um, and into that little book. That's That's all <laughs> that's about.
0: Is there any one case that kind of still stays with you? To
1: this day, well, yeah, I guess I can remember. Uh, well, there, a bunch of them do, um, but you've you've got me here shooting <laughs> from the hip. But but wh- one in particular was kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. I remember one day um, uh, the constabulary, the officers, brought in this young woman, very disheveled. Um, it looks, it, she looked as though she hadn't had a bath and. A month all bedraggled and her she was so skinny her clothes were falling off her in very inappropriate ways and um, she was remanded I think she went off uh, uh, for an assessment to determine her fitness and ultimately went away for a treatment order and um, came back and started making various appearances before the court um, now that she was on the path toward resolving her issues and mm-hmm. Um, you know, we sometimes have 80 people on a docket, so I don't keep track of them day to day to day. Mm-hmm. But this one day, um, uh, there was uh, I was in the courtroom, and the, the young lawyers, they line up on the first bench or two in the courtroom and wait for their matters to be called. And usually the young ones are a little shy because the older ones just run right over them. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes I shepherd things around and try to look after the younger ones. And anyway, this one morning I remember there was this young woman sitting in the front row, very neatly dressed, and had a little briefcase. And uh, she'd been sitting there patiently and quietly. And I thought, oh, I better call her matter. Mm -hmm. So I I, uh, pointed to the young woman and said, could we, counsel, could we assist you with your matter? You've been sitting there for some time. And duty counsel popped up and said, oh, that's Miss, no, I don't remember her name. Mm-hmm. That's Miss Jones. Mm-hmm. And it was the same woman who I had seen probably three months before looking completely disheveled and bedraggled and quite psychotic. Mm -hmm. She had um, been off and been assessed and got treatment and hooked in with the appropriate facilities. Mm -hmm. And here she was. In my courtroom, and I'd mistaken her for a young lawyer. Her improvement had been so dramatic.
0: That's amazing.
1: So she was off, and had yeah. uh, her—I think her matters were diverted, mm-hmm. so, which would result in the charges being stayed or withdrawn. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, she was really quite a remarkable example of the turnaround that you can make with some of these people mm-hmm. if they're provided with the proper supports. Mm-hmm. So that—that's—that's that's always stood out in my mind. Yeah. But there's a bunch of others uh, yeah. that I. <laughs> that's
0: awesome. Well. Thank you, Richard, for having part one podcast. On our next podcast, we'll go into other things. So thank you for sitting with us and chatting with us. Hey, no
1: problem. That was easy.
0: (laughs) You've reached the end of this week's episode with the Trauma Mental Health Report podcast. Thanks for joining us. Connect with us at trauma.blog.urq.ca. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and newsletter to see our latest content. We'll see you at the next episode. Thank you.